This is Radio Science, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission? To probe the critical debates in archaeology in conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. On October 6, 2017, archaeologist Anne Porter from the University of Toronto met with a panel of SIAM students and faculty to discuss nomadism and kinship in the ancient Near East. It's time to think things over. Stay tuned for Radio SIAMs. Good afternoon and welcome to this edition of Radio SIAMs. My name is Adam Smith. I am a professor of anthropology here at Cornell. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome our guest today, Professor Ann Porter, Assistant Professor in the Department of Near and Middle Eastern Civilizations at the University of Toronto. Dr. Porter's wide-ranging investigations of the ancient Near East during the third and second millennia BC grapple with a host of issues fundamental to how we think of state and civilization, kinship and community, with publications touching on topics from sacrifice and violence to mobility and pastoralism. We can be sure of an expansive conversation here today. Our touchstones for today's conversations are two samples of Dr. Porter's recent scholarship. First, a 2009 piece entitled Beyond Dimorphism, Ideologies and Materialities of Kinship as Time-Space Distantiation that appeared in the book Nomads, Tribes, and the State in the Ancient Near East. Second, we have in front of us selections from Dr. Porter's 2012 book from Cambridge University Press, Mobile Pastoralism and the Formation of Near Eastern Civilizations. Around the table with me today are six of our exceptional SIAM students who will be leading most of our discussions today. They will introduce themselves in turn as the conversation unfolds. But let me start things off by asking Dr. Porter to reflect a bit on the state of Near Eastern archaeology in the current moment. I'm curious as to how you see the upheaval in the region that arguably began as early as the first Gulf War, or maybe even earlier than that, if we take the Iranian revolution as a marking point. How has this shaped the intellectual priorities and possibilities of current research generally? And I'm also curious as to how you think your own work has been shaped by the tumultuous context of study. Ah, what an um, interesting and uh, difficult question. Uh, I think that the history of conflicts in the region have led to mobile academics who have just moved from one region to the other uh, with a focus on uh, excavation as uh, what drives what they do and where they go. And I think this is really uh, actually a great tragedy because it's not as if there isn't so much to do with what we've got. Not to say that you know going to Kurdistan or exploring new areas isn't um, opening up a whole lot of other uh, information, but you know some days I just feel that we are building ever taller edifices on a basis of popsicle sticks that um, we have so little grasp of what we already have that adding further to it is taking us away progressively from an ability to engage with what we have and how to conceptualize it in a better way uh, than we currently do. So the main uh, academic edifices of the Near Eastern data are things that have assumed the force of fact for no really good reason. They have just become uh, reified through time uh, and small aspects of them have been challenged, but nobody much steps outside uh, that structure to look at it again. 
So I'm a little unhappy, I think, with this uh, progressive movement across the landscape that is dictated by war. We all love to dig, and that's why most of us are in the field. By the same token, there's just so much to do with what's sitting out there. So uh, when I was a, a young graduate student in Syria, and there was just us and the French, really, and then all these Americans came as refugees from Iraq. I felt a little resentful then, and I feel resentful now that they're leaving and going to other places. Uh, but there's an academic reason for it. It's because I, I guess I don't feel, uh, and I have many close colleagues who would be unhappy with me saying this, um, that the investment is in the problem as much as it is in the doing. And for me, it's in the problem. Mm -hmm. Much as I need Do you think there's any sense in which the focus on mobility, of which your work is also very emblematic of, comes from the personal experience of having to be mobile themselves, as, uh, as archaeologists have come to explore a wider landscape rather than just root, rooting themselves in a site and staying there for 30 years? They themselves have sort of become more uh, peripatetic. Mm -hmm. Uh, no, my interest in mobility comes from reading Ben Helm's book about Java and all the questions that I find in my own work that I just turn in huge circles. I have a problem that I don't get and I spend sometimes concentrated, usually scattered work thinking about those problems and then one day I've got it all together and that topic's finished. So uh, this idea that pastoralists uh, could not have uh, built a settled uh, or a substantial community has just bothered me since 1998, maybe somewhere around there. Uh, and so uh, the mobility came after for me, <laughs> definitely. I had never left the country at that point. So. <laughs> Hi, I'm Gabby Bornstein. I'm a third year PhD student in anthropology. So a, lot of, a large corpus of your research challenges the epistemological framework through which archaeologists have approached the state and the stateless as opposing dichotomous entities during the third and second millennium BC. But what happens to our reconstructions of the past when the mobile and sedentary counterparts are seen as interconnected parts of the same society? How does the narrative that emerges change our perception of the ancient state? I think it takes power out of the equation to a large extent. So uh, whatever particular body of data you are looking at, um, whether we're talking about Habubic Thera or Telhuera or take your pick, uh, the construct is basically in the status quo that uh, there is a power relationship to be read in that. And by putting pastoralists and uh, sedentary populations as part of the same system, I see those exact same things as being directed towards that relationship rather than towards a hierarchy of a, of a ruling elite. Uh, which is not to say that there aren't you know, rulers and elites and everything else, but that it stops being a single top-down line of uh, exploration and becomes a, a multifaceted bottom-up discussion, I think. That, for me, that's the, the key thing. So religion, of course, the manipulation of ideology and the control of the subordinate masses uh, takes on a different dimension 
because it's really about social relationships as much as it is about um, cosmological ones or Hi, I'm uh, Anna Paola Passerini. I'm a first year PhD student in the anthropology program. I particularly enjoy reading your uh, the excerpt from your book. I find it particularly refreshing the way you set the whole discussion about um, how uh, uh, problems around mobility in the past have been conceptualized by a fundamental dualism between the state, like the state mm -hmm. that was Mesopotamia and what the others that were mobile pastorals. Um, your discussions, it's, uh, uh, it's really rooted in the historical periods where we have an insider perspective on this from the letters of Mari or other relevant documentation. But I was wondering how, uh, what was your take on the prehistoric periods as we now know that pastoralism is quite operative in the late Uruk expansion. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering what was your take on that? Uh, I came to the historic reluctantly. Uh, because it seemed to me that so many views of this had come from specifically the Maori texts. Uh, I had for a long time, uh, I went to the Orange Institute and I uh, endured the bifurcated uh, approaches to archaeology and materiology that um, uh, were fairly powerful in my day. Uh, and so I really, I did Hittite as my language, not Akkadian, as a deliberate uh, reaction to that. Um, and because Hittite, you know, that was the only place I could study it. I uh, actually started by thinking about the prehistoric or the pretextual, because I don't really count the Ur period as uh, the fourth millennium as prehistoric, uh, so the sort of pretextual period, that was much more my focus as a starting point for this, even though I didn't write it that way, I started with the, the Maori text there. So uh, that was a purely theoretical standpoint. Uh, at that time when I, I actually finished this in 2010, so it took two years to come into the press, at that time uh, there was really little discussion of wool-making technology that was particularly um, powerful in, in the literature. Uh, the idea of, of the fifth millennium as being uh, when wool-bearing sheep and spinning and so on start to become uh, pretty widespread was just uh, touched on. Um, so I felt that there was some evidence to consider this from a theoretical point of view, but I did not, and I still don't see that there's a lot of um, good scientific factual data for this. But that's okay because I never uh, pretended that that's what I was doing. Uh, I postulated right at the beginning of the book a what if scenario. Uh, and the point was uh, the whole point of this book, um, and to some extent, the uh, beyond dimorphism is that the same body of evidence can be flipped to reconstruct an entirely different picture. And I'm sure you could all come up with a third, fourth, and fifth picture. This just happened to be uh, where I, you know, my interests lay. Uh, so uh, I think it's incredibly important in the fourth millennium, as far as I'm concerned. And any economy that is uh, as heavily based on wool as the Mesopotamian and the Syrian economies are, no matter what uh, my colleagues from Ebla 
want to say, uh, has to be based equally, therefore, in some way, on animal husbandry. Uh, and there are lots of ways that might be. But uh, the wool doesn't come from nowhere. And I don't think uh, an economy um, in the pre-modern world uh, is going to allow uh, its primary sources to be so randomly out of its control. Yeah. So I turn to the Maori texts as a secondary way of thinking about uh, the possibilities and as a way of deconstructing those ideas. When I wrote this book, I just had certain scholars' voices in my head saying, but what if? So I heard all the, their objections and their arguments as I, I was writing and um, uh, attempted to both address and deconstruct them at the same time. See, I told you I'd have my eyes. Great. <laughs> Hi, I'm Amy Carney. I'm a third-year PhD student in the anthropology department. Um, I really enjoyed your readings, especially the way you talked about pastoralists and how usually we see pastoralism as sort of others, and this is built on this ethnographic um, idea that was perpetuated by people like Evan Pritchard. Um, and you did mention in your book how pastoralism in archaeological record or nomadic pastoralists is not there, and so we come up with these ideas based on ethnography. But now we see a trend in the discipline to move towards like isotope analysis mm -hmm. and satellite imagery to give these pastoralism uh, mm -hmm. a little bit more agency. But I also think that there may be some problems with just relying on those scientific methods. And I was wondering how you see the archaeology with these new methodologies mm -hmm. moving forward. Yeah, right. uh, yeah so th this is. Uh, um, Great question. Uh, I, they're tremendously exciting. I mean, isotope analysis, being able to know somebody was grew up here and then moved there, and I, I just think that's fabulous. Uh, but I also fear that there's a, a, a strong sense uh, that we don't need theory anymore because we have some of these techniques like DNA and isotope analysis that absolve us of the heavy lifting. Uh, theoretically, and of course, any answer that comes out of those techniques is inflected through theory, consciously or unconsciously. Anyway, uh, so it is both uh, exciting and a little nerve-wracking. Um, so I really, really would forcefully uh, say that uh, the combination here has the ability to take us leaps and bounds forward, but that I uh, fear that one on its own is not going to advance us very much. So yeah, that's where I'm optimistic. Uh, where I'm pessimistic is because uh, I've been in this field for a long time now, uh, and it fundamentally hasn't changed. Uh, the discourse at the core of it all hasn't changed. There are people working around the edges that are doing really innovative and wonderful things, uh, and I don't mean that spatially. I mean that you know just professionally in some ways. But that core um, 1970s, 80s uh, processualist discourse about city and state uh, and power are still dominant. Do you think that's unique to the ancient Near East and the global archaeological? I suspect it is more so in the Near East than, than other uh, places. You know, post-processualism, post-processualism, Post-processualism has uh, really uh, pushed that in other, other parts. 
but uh, apparently post-processualism is still perceived by some as a very impertinent way to think about the ancient Near East. So, yeah, I think other places have done better than uh, that core Mesopotamian. And when I say core, uh, that's an unfortunate word in the, the larger theoretical context. Uh, but it, that is the space that has traditionally been the core of you know, teaching and scholarship in Eastern uh, research, as well as space. Hi, my name is Southie Bokirian. I'm a first year master's student in the science archaeology program. Um, and I was wondering, you discuss kinship a lot in your work. And when you're excavating, what kinds of material evidence for kinship do you typically find or look for? What does kinship look like in the archaeological materials? Um, where would we find kinship? So, oh, that is a really challenging and great question. Uh, for me, I think. Uh, it exists in domestic spaces, obviously, starting with. Uh, I think it really uh, has to be an aspect, if not the aspect, uh, of uh, treatment of the dead, whatever that way must be. Um, and I see it specifically, as I uh, outline in this book, uh, in the um, locus of domestic, uh, I don't like the word religion, but that'll have to do, uh, religious practices uh, that are not separate from, but uh, interconnected with and running parallel to public religious institutions. They're all part and parcel of the same framework and they share or share the same thing. Uh, but so I see kinship as enacted in these uh, domestic, feasting spaces that crop up quite over time and space that are particularly prominent, I think, in the, the fourth millennium there. Uh, but it's a huge theoretical question, and it goes to the core of what we do, those links between stuff and uh, people, which, again, I think Near Eastern archaeology is uh, lagging behind in pushing and pushing and pushing to do uh, a better job of coming up with of those relationships. You know, there's still in a lot of literature uh, a sense that an object has a one-to-one -one relationship with an action and a person uh, in some way. Uh, so, what does kinship look like? What do your family relations look like? Um, shared material culture in a lot of ways and maybe very specific items. But for me, the place to start thinking about that is in our own lives to see how we manifest that materially, uh, if we do. Because, of course, it's a social thing that is enacted, so there must be some way that it's materially present. But there's not a category of objects that is kinship. But I do think uh, there's a potential here in pop marks, at least in my neck of the woods. They are not about production. Uh, they're just none of the ways of their distribution in my own pottery production area bears out that this is about something that the pottery is doing to control his work, and they're certainly absolutely not volumetric. Uh, the patterns are so complex that I think a 
GIS study is the only one available. So I'm really um, very excited about the prospect of this project that I'm uh, trying to put together to do a region-wide GIS study of this division of problems. I think they might see me Hi, I'm Marianne Nichols, and I'm a first-year MA student in the science program. I really enjoyed your 2009 piece, and especially your comments concerning the way you understand the dead role in a push ID. I was wondering if you could briefly comment upon your understanding of the way in which different interred individuals in the same tomb or mortuary complex um, related to each other, and if that relationship was strictly limited to the physical boundaries uh, so there ideally would be a way to know that, again, through DNA studies, but uh, that's not going to be possible with any of the stuff from Telvin Act. Uh, I don't remember actually discussing that with any other people, to tell you the truth. But uh, I do know that it doesn't have to be a biological relationship. Um, clearly what's being assembled in uh, some of uh, these multiple secondary commingled deposits are uh, ideas of family rather than the actual family. So if all these secondary deposits of multiple commingled etc with you know people from uh, infancy to young uh, teenagers to young adults to older adults to geriatrics are dying all at the same time, which is really the only way um, that biologically they can be produced. So either they're dying in an accident or they're dying one after the other, but every member of the family is dying at an appropriate age range uh, to constitute the family, that's very dubious. Uh, so to me, they are making what looks like a family by collecting bodies of different ages because they just don't see um, and it really depends on the statistics here and I don't have any hard data, I just have an objective understanding of the secondary burials around the Indian Freddy's area. I don't think every, you know, maybe fifth or sixth family is dying in that way. So uh, it's artificial. And so, therefore, it is reaching out into other people's families to construct these entities. I'm not sure if that answers your question. I'm Lizzie Dews. I'm a first year MA student in the science program. Um, I really enjoyed reading this. It was actually something that you said last night during the talk that really struck me. Um, you mentioned that your storerooms um, had been destroyed by ISIS mm -hmm. early on. And I was wondering what your stance is on moving into out of war during times of conflict. Mm. Uh, mm. Do you know, it would seem on the face of it that I should say that is a sensible and rational thing to do, but I, I can't. Uh, I feel that that is still just part of the Western hegemonic discourse about who owns antiquities and who doesn't. Uh, and that it's an opportunity for a further colonialist uh, intervention in an impractical way because I just don't think a whole lot of sherds amount to terribly much in this situation. Uh, 
Do I regret not having that material? Of course. Do I think that it is uh, a worse crime than anything else that's being done? Absolutely not. Uh, it's stuff. And so, yeah, no, I, I wouldn't. And I'm sure that that is not um, how a lot of my colleagues feel, but if the Syrians said to me, please take this home and look after it and bring it back in you know, five years when everything's fine, I would say yes, absolutely, of course. Uh, but they didn't, and it's their stuff, and that's as far as it goes. And, you know, there have been so many stories of uh, materials that have been taken out on agreement with the government, and of course, the people who have them do everything they can not to give them back or delay the giving them back, which I think is. So I am all for promoting in every way I can uh, Syrian archaeology and Syrian uh, ownership of archaeological materials. And if that means some stuff gets lost, stuff gets lost. And it happens anyway. I don't know what it's like in uh, the Caucasus, but the reality is, you know, excavations lose things one way or another. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, so, no. Uh, uh, I'm going to leave the what things get lost in the caucuses in the caucuses, <laughs> if you don't mind. Uh, but I would love to uh, come back to the question of mobility, uh, and particularly one of the central arguments of your book, uh, that uh, so much of what we think of as the hallmarks of 3rd and 2nd millennium BC Near East emerge out of these constructive tensions that mobility presents, rather than in a kind of dimorphic mm -hmm. Uh, opposition mm -hmm. and what we might think of even as a uh, uh, an op oppositional set of forces, uh, but rather that this what you call the risk of dispersal presents these constant challenges that we might think of as the foundations for everything from social institutions of urbanism to uh, to imagine cultural imaginations of barbarity also being part of that or language ideologies mm -hmm. also emerging as productive aspects of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, but what I wanted to ask was, is that the risk of dispersal uh, applies not only to pastoralists, but there are presumably other segments of societies in third millennium and second mm -hmm. millennium BC, Mesopotamia in particular, that are also on the move. I'm thinking here of merchants mm -hmm. or mercenaries, mm -hmm. diasporans or pilgrims, mm -hmm. exiles, mm -hmm. etc. These are all on the move as well. And what makes pastoralists categorically different, though, is animals. Right. They're not actually different categorically as people, no. but they have these companion species, yes. to use the uh, lexicon of a contemporary turn in anthropology. And I wanted to ask you to think about what role, or even think about maybe the efficacy of these animals in particular, in driving some of these tensions. And in a sense, the responsibility for much of what we're seeing in 3rd and 2nd millennium BC is actually displaced upon, uh, uh, away from agentive humans in the classic ah. liberal form, to humans in collaboration with their compare uh, their their species. Uh, yeah, and I think that's I think that's absolutely right, and I think it's an area uh, of which I had very little cognizance when I wrote that book. But I just reviewed a collection of articles uh, edited by Dawn Chad and someone else, and I can't remember the title. Uh, but there was a piece in that, two pieces in that. Uh, about the relationship of particular pastoralist groups with their animals that was mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. 
you know, the, the symbolic constructions, the emotional ties, uh, the social kinship relationships that people had with their animals, the way they understood the animals in the landscape. I don't, you know, my jaw just fell open and I realized the impoverishment uh, of my own work here because uh, this brings a whole new dimension to movement uh, and to the choices that pastoralists make uh, that um, are absolutely going to be a part of it. I don't know how we see them, uh, except maybe in images. And so for the last couple of years, apart from uh, bodies, I've been very interested in uh, images, both as the source for this uh, idea about the Mesopotamian uh, fear of the wild and so on, uh, and as a way of expressing their absolutely daily intimate relationship with the steppe and the wild. Uh, and I have no way of knowing where um, these are situated, you know, are these people who are fundamentally pastoralists who are producing these, or are these people with relations who are pastoralists. But the, you know, images of animals, um, the steppe and so on, are so ubiquitous throughout that whole uh, area that it just, to me, undermines a lot of this discourse. Uh, so, uh, yes, that's a, a great question. Um, I don't know that I could ever uh, go forward and answer it, but uh, somebody should. It's, it's striking when you think of the iconography of uh, the emerging forms of kingship, for example, mm -hmm. that are so uh, uh, eager to talk about the wild, mm -hmm. to lions and these sorts of uh, things become fundamental to the representation mm -hmm. of kingship, uh, but not goats right. or sheep. Right. Or herds yeah. or things like that, other than the herds that are stolen. Right. And I but it's it strikes me as a fundamental process of sublimation that work in the state process where one has to push away that which is actually most fundamental to one's emergence. Mm -hmm. And instead you, you do a kind of magical transposition where, oh really it's the lion that's so fundamental to my kingship because I can show my ability to master the wild. Where really it's the sheep. Mm -hmm. That's so fundamental, mm -hmm. not just mm -hmm. through the wool, but through the practices of uh, of pastoral herding, etc., mm -hmm. that give one the capacity to to deal with these risks of dispersal. What's really interesting to me there is a another aspect of that relationship where those very animals become so closely tied to deities. Mm. Uh, and so I was looking at the undergraduate class at St. Cyrilline de Seals with. Symbols of the gods, uh, animal avatars, if you like, or familiars even, that they're constantly represented with. So, uh, lion is Ishtar, um, birds, uh, gazelle, fish, you know, it's just exactly that sort of process gets uh, transformed, put onto the divine room as well, which I think is a very interesting thing. So, the complexity here um, of the interacting nature of both the sources and human relationships with everything around them uh, is what I uh, strive in some way to try and approach, mm -hmm. hence the 100-page chapters, <laughs> because uh, everything is interconnected, as Douglas Adams would say. So I wanted to go back a little bit to the subject of kinship. Um, your work provokes a general, more general discussion about the biological and social constitution of tribes, states, and empires. Whether it is biological or imaginary, communities at some level much always 
as you described, choose what defines them, mm -hmm. um, who is included, who is excluded. And we're seeing a brilliant moment of that mm -hmm. in all its negativity right now uh, in time. And the uh, fascinating thing about having a foot in Canada and a foot in America is the opposite discourses mm -hmm. about who we choose uh, to allow into our societies and how we uh, integrate and externalize and fascinating. So one of the things that I found really interesting was how you bridge these sort of biological and imaginary underpinnings to practice. And your work suggests that mortuary rituals turning to the past was one avenue in the ancient world that facilitates communal cohesion and identity or the negotiation of identity. So I was wondering how you envision the secondary burial practices at Telbanot um, or the continued contact with the deceased facilitating a common identity among the community of the living. Uh, yeah, so I had initially understood the construction of Telbanot North, which is this mound with bodies in it built up over multiple stages um, and so visible in the landscape and a mountain echoing the mountains around them and so on. Uh, I had understood the transformation of individual people into this jumble of bones, multiple commingled, blah, 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 secondary barrels, uh, as representing that corporate identity. But you see, we didn't recognize that we had the same process going on back in the center of uh, the main settlement mound with uh, another mortuary mound that was enlarged and exposed in corresponding time periods in completely different ways. Uh, so I don't know what really to make of that parallel um, idea. There are lots of things that could be going on here, but you have one outside the town and one inside the town right at the, the heart of it. Um, one is very natural and one is very uh, structured, built. Uh, one isn't like any house or building that we have at the site or anywhere else, and yet it is a house, it is a structure, it's, it's rooms with doors and, and windows. Uh, so I'm not sure that I am as invested in the corporate identity of the dead as I was uh, initially. Uh, it's easy to say, well, here is, you know, the elite and the king. Um, my European colleagues think I nuts to be spending any time because it's so obvious that the, the uh, Tilbanat North, the White Monument, is the king and Tombstone is the queen. End of story. Um, but there's something really interesting going on here, and I don't know what it is yet. I see a sort of uh, emulative process going on, maybe, and maybe not. Um, Maybe there are completely different things being expressed in similar forms and actions. So uh, I only recently started to understand the complexity within Tomb 7. When I, we first excavated that and everyone was all excited because there's so much stuff and I hate stuff. I'm not an object person. Um, so there's a few mouldy bones and stuff. And I had no interest whatsoever in that until I really started to understand the complexity of actions in, in the other two uh, secondary burial places. Uh, and then I started to realise that I needed to be looking at Tomb 7 in a whole other way, which was about the actions that were taking place and the processes by which everything was compiled and structured and understanding everything as a structured deposition. 
so I'm still really in the early phases of incorporating that into the larger pattern. Uh, I still think maybe the corporate is part of what's going on. The other thing is I'm reworking the stratigraphy of the internal cans uh, in the uh, phase B of the White Monument, uh, and uh, they may not be as many bodies in the same space as I had thought they were. So I'm reconfiguring that piece. So pending is the answer to your question. I would like to go back to the <coughs> problem of uh, pastoralism. And I would like to like kind of separate the two elements, mobility and pastoralism. So okay. like obviously these two kind of tend to go together because there's some, there's a certain there's a certain pattern that follows being a pastoral still within a defined landscape though, because like it like being a pastoral um, implies also some sort of dependence on the ecological niche mm -hmm. of the animal that the animal that is suited to the animal. Um, now, uh, this like risks to obviously fall into uh, deterministic views that like explain, for instance, mass migration of, of pastoral societies by the, as, as a consequence of a, of a major political push. So, like, mm -hmm. people have come up with alternative explanations to that. One of one of which is like Diniac segmentation. So, how how social is mobility, in your opinion? How social is mobility? Uh, it's absolutely social. The uh, ecological um, really is not that much different from one part of that uh, steppe landscape to another. Uh, in terms of understanding water sources, uh, that's social information that is passed from one person to another. All of it's social. Who goes where is social. And I've watched this over my you know, umpteen years sitting there, uh, seeing groups move up into Syria, down from the mountains, uh, through the steppe, from Palmyra to Telbanat, from uh, every year the movement's different, and every year it's about who you're connected to. Uh, so people um, make a lot of different decisions, but the one thing they do is go to the place where they have relatives. But it wasn't until uh, one winter, early winter, uh, we were working and it was just me and uh, um, people from the village, there was some team there at that point, uh, and I stopped listening to the chatter that goes on in the background um, a lot, and then I heard people talking about this place, I thought they were saying Saigon, and I really thought, what is this discussion about Saigon, are we reliving the Vietnam War in, in Turbinat, but it was a little tiny town called Saigon, and it was up in the steppe, and uh, I mean, this too was a, a transformative moment for me. Uh, and I said, why, why have I never heard about this place and what are you doing? And So it turns out that people from Telbanat have sort of specific marriage relations with people in this town called Saigal, which is up in the steppe, and they keep their sheep there. And that one guy who uh, I had no idea was a major um, owner of thousand sheep he said well it's probably exaggerated but a lot uh, so they have the family in the steppe uh, looks after the animals and at specific times of the year the people in the uh, river plain go up and they do their share of the shearing plucking whatever it is they do uh, and vice versa the people in the steppe come back down the valley at harvest times and 
which explains why every now and then there'd be all these people in the village that I'd never seen before thinking, how have I not met you? <laughs> There's so few people here. And so it's symbiotic, it's social, um, and it's mutually supportive, and there are big fights that break out between people, and, uh, and it's social. Uh, people will come from long distances away in times of environmental stress, like a drought, uh, and they will have a kinship with um, somebody in that area that uh, facilitates or allows them to come and set up their camp in, in the environment. Now, I don't know if that kinship is real. I don't know. Nobody invokes their tribal identity at all until you start pushing them uh, about it, uh, sort of asking, but who are you and have, what's that name and where does it come from? Uh, and then they all have it. They just don't need to deploy it in everyday life, but there are moments when it will come to the fore. Uh, so I understand every single aspect of it is social. And the environment, uh, plays a part, but it's not the determinative part. Uh, and you see it most in unusual environmental situations where the regular is so present. So I want to sort of combine two ideas, what you were talking about last night and what you were mm -hmm. talking about um, in your book. So throughout the um, your discussions of pastoralism and what I've also seen in the literature is that there's this otherness that has been projected onto pastoralists. They're, you know, either absent from the literature or they're seen as sort of barbaric. Mm -hmm. um, and this, and you pointed out um, that this comes from a lot of the ethnographic um, and colonialist ideals. Mm -hmm. um, and so last night you started talking a bit about ontology and the secondary burials and how these, these burials were uh, part of like the, maybe the same ontological um, groups. I'm wondering how you see the ontological term and pastoralism, especially in the Mesopotamian state. How do, do you think the nomadic pastorals, is that, does, will ontology give them a voice they may not have had, and were they part of the same ontology as the state? I think yes. And I'm trying to think how to see this. Yeah. Uh, and again, I think it comes back to images and stories. And so um, for me, in my reading of the old Babylonian Gilgamesh stories, it's entirely about this uh, integrated duality, uh, this complementary, interchangeable even identity between these two places. Uh, I understand that as being a critical part of what's being written in the stories at that point for historic uh, reasons. Um, when we look at images going back uh, even to the fifth, uh, sixth millennium, fifth millennium in particular, I think we can see uh, a hybridity and sort of a, a statement of an ontological uh, sameness and again interdependence, even things that are classically called master of the animals, going back to uh, the cylinder seals and um, stamp seals, excuse me, uh, from Susa and moving on to the Akkadian context scenes. Uh, those scenes to me are not so much about conflict as they are about balance and uh, equality, but I don't mean in a social, uh, in a social status way. I mean in representation of exactly the same 
in every aspect, uh, these hybrid figures and human figures, engaging with animals in all sorts of ways. So, uh, yeah, I, I think they're ontologically um, the same. Uh, the otherness is something that I think we have imposed, that I think is just denied by the uh, visuality. Um, and, and the stories, and I mean, you know, the debate between sheep and grain uh, is not about the supremacy of grain there. It's about a sort of domestic spat that <laughs> sort of comes up, but all through that story, uh, as, as an example, uh, there is the interdependence, and without both, everything falls apart. Um, I was wondering, sort of going off that question, if you could talk a little more about how landscape figures into that shared ontology there. Uh, yeah, so my experience is so heavily rooted in Syria, and I have little uh, experience of the southern uh, Iraqi world. Uh, but nevertheless, um, there's nowhere where you are where that landscape outside uh, the built is not visible, is not present, is not there. And, uh, you know, um, it's underpinning everything. It's represented in images. It's represented uh, in constructions. People are building that natural landscape. They're replicating it and duplicating it. Uh, so it's a very profound part uh, of everything that's going on, I think. Uh, and it's just always there. I think you would be hard put, I mean, these cities, these sediments, they think, oh, they're just not that big. It's not that, you know, two steps this way and you're not going to see the countryside. So it's not like living in New York. It's more like living in Italy in that regard. We want to talk about some of our applications a little bit and about doing that. I was hoping you could give a little bit more uh, specifics concerning your team as to how the archaeologists you work with came from, you know, political or military training to more to advance their fields, even though their options are still more remotely uh, based with the region. I would just say revisit the story for all of you. Go back to what we think we know. And I'm not even sure you have to go back to the materials, the site reports, the data, I think you just can go back to the constructs uh, and think about that from all the different perspectives uh, that are now on the table for us to work with. I think it's really simple. And I think that you can rebuild the entire picture of the whole New Eastern story from the north, probably all the way through. So it's actually okay to be an armchair archaeologist and do this at home, or to work in Syria and have your field experience in Mesoamerica. Mm-hmm. Field experience is field experience. The more experience you get in other places, I'm sure, the more beneficial that is. But um, anyone who's planning on working in the Near East is going to face at some point in their career uh, that turmoil, that shutdown, anyway until we figure out you know, all the terrible mistakes they're making, all of it in that regard. 
So, uh, you know, archaeologists often say, well, I'm not there for politics, I'm not interested in politics, but that doesn't matter because everything is very political. So I believe everything is political. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the secondary video context that Ben touched on and how we can analyze the intent behind secondary video. So how do you approach that question? Uh, anything that is a deliberate action has meaning. It's not... Um, it's not random, haphazard, uh, taponomic. So that's all I need to understand that there is significance and meaning. Either people are moving the dead because it is socially sanctioned, it's uh, religiously sanctioned, it's part of something they need to do, or they're doing it in uh, opposition to those sanctions, in which case it's still a very meaningful thing. But if you live in a framework, and we don't, so it's hard, I think, for a lot of people to understand what it's like to be someone in the ancient world where the reality of uh, the supernatural is imbued in everything you do and all around you as a very mundane thing. Uh, people are not casually ignoring that. Uh, they may flaunt it. They may uh, try to dismantle it, but it's not nothing. And so to move bodies is not uh, just a practical concern. You are moving those bodies within a framework that allows it or doesn't allow it. And either way, that means there is something uh, significant to that action. So I, I don't need much to understand the Hertzian uh, idea of significance. It doesn't have to be exactly as Hertz laid out, uh, but that there is significance. And especially when you go to the trouble of collecting bodies from specific places at specific age groups and so on, uh, and you add into the fact that someone in Tomb 1 and Tomb 2 has been cooked before they were put in there, that's even more special. And on that cooked note, we will have to bring this episode of Radio Science to a close. I want to first of all thank our special guest, Ann Porter. Thank you very much. Thank you it's been a fascinating conversation. I want to thank all of our students who participated, and I want to thank all of you for listening as well. Stay tuned for the next episode of Radio Science. You've been listening to Radio Science, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. This episode has been a long time in the making because our regular team wasn't available to record it. Apologies are due to the participants for the delay, and our thanks go to Gabrielle Bornstein for filling in as recording engineer last year. Radio Siams is now produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. You can see all AAA-sponsored podcasts at AmericanAnthro.org. All our Siams podcasts can be found on the Siams website at ciams.cornell.edu or on archive.org. Thanks to all our listeners, and we hope you'll tune in to the next episode of Radio Siams.